Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. All right, so we are uh, in week four, I believe, of dealing with the doctrine of humanity and the doctrine of sin. Uh, And so what we're going to do tonight is look specifically at the doctrine of original sin. Uh, What do we mean by original sin? Last week we looked at uh, Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve sinned. Theologically, the doctrine of original sin carries with it the concept and idea that all of us uh, are sinful. We're sinners through and through. And what does that mean for the way in which we kind of operate and understand our Christian faith? So we're going to walk through that subject tonight. Charles Ryrie put it this way, dealing with specifically Paul's understanding of sin. Uh, The quote there in front of you is this, Paul's concept of sin was Hebraistic, not Hellenistic, meaning it came from a biblical worldview, Old Testament worldview, not not a Greek worldview. The Greek idea was that sin was undeveloped good and a necessary stage in the upward progress of man toward God. Uh, a mistake was, in the final analysis, intellectual and not moral. reason I put that quote in there is simply this. A lot of times we use language that is much more akin to a Greek perspective or a secular perspective on the topic of sin. Sin is not a very popular discussion point in contemporary culture. There are times we use the word sin and people say that makes me feel bad and There are sometimes preachers who don't want to use the word sin and don't want to talk about sin, and so they they kind of cover it over and sugarcoat it a little bit. That was a very typical concept in the ancient Greek world. Sin is a mistake. I just messed up. I, I I did something I probably shouldn't have done. And a lot of times we've even used language like that to try to soften what is really a sin. But that's not the language the Bible uses. When the Bible talks about sin, it talks about it not just from an intellectual problem or, or, a, or a, a relational issue. Hey, I just, I, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. It's a moral problem. The language that the Bible uses, particularly that Paul uses in the New Testament, uh, he defines sin in the following ways. This list in front of you comes from... Um, Several passages in the New Testament, he describes sin as missing the mark. So if there's a target and expectation that God has, sin is missing that expectation. It's falling short of what God expects. You can see that in Romans 5, uh, verses 12 through chapter 6, verse 1. Sin is also a trespass. That's the second blank. It is a willful disobedience. So, uh, we could illustrate it this way. If you're a parent and you give your child an assignment to clean their whole room and they pick up one pair of dirty clothes and put them in the laundry bin, that's missing the mark. All right? But if, if your house is anything like my house, there are some times when I impress upon my children the need to clean their room. And nobody heard that impression. Well, they heard it, but they didn't listen to it. They decided that they knew better than dad. Trespassing is willful disobedience. It's when God says something to us, here's what you do, and we look at what God said and we say we know better. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. A trespass. It's a willful disobedience of a rule or a standard that God put together. 
So there's trespass. And that's also from Romans 2.23, Galatians 3.19. Sin is also a falling away or it is a deviation from the truth. Uh, that would be Romans 5.19, or excuse me, Romans 5.15 and 17 and 18. A deviation. So when we, when we look at something that's true and we turn away from it, that is a description of what sin is. Uh, Paul talks about that in detail in Romans 1. We'll see that in a moment. You can also have an unwillingness to hear. Romans 5.19, it's the idea that God is speaking and we're not listening whatsoever. And the reality is, if you look at the Old Testament and see the sinfulness of the people of Israel, that's a pretty good description of what Israel did. They had the law, they ignored it. They had the prophets, they ignored them. They had the sacrificial system, they didn't want to listen. So sin is an unwillingness to hear. Another description of sin is unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. It is the opposite of what God is. God is righteous. He is a perfect fulfillment of every standard that he would have expected of us. Sin is when we are not that. When we're not righteous. Sin is also ungodliness. Uh, Romans 1.18, Titus 2.12. It's the idea that we're, we're not characterized by the qualities and the, the, the above reproach nature that God has. We're ungodly. We're unrighteous. Sin is also a def, uh, ignorance. That would be Ephesians 4.18. So uh, here's, here's a way to think of that. Nobody's going to get a pass when they stand before God. They're not going to be able to say, but God, I didn't know. Ignorance is not an excuse. It might be a factor in why someone did not come to know God, but it doesn't function as an excuse because God made himself known. Paul talked about that in Romans 1. He made himself known to all people through his creation, through the glories of his work, the glories of what he made. Sin is a defeat or loss, Romans eleven twelve, 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 7. And finally, sin is a grievous wickedness. Romans 1, 29 through 31, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 8. Uh, grievous wickedness, what do I mean by that? Well, when we ignore God's truth, God lets us behave how we choose to. He gives us a measure of freedom. Now, we're going to talk about free will in a little bit and uh, Luther's perspective on free will and how that affects the concept of um, the doctrine of original sin. But God does give a measure of freedom. If we ignore him, he lets us choose to ignore him. And if you see that process in the book of Romans, what happened is there was a suppression of truth, ignoring what God revealed about himself, and then that led to a progression of sinful behaviors. All sorts of sinful behaviors, grievous wickedness, because there was a rejection of what God had said uh, was right and righteous. Let me give you some specific effects of sin in our own lives We'll start with our relationship to God. What does sin do in our relationship with God? Well, sin is uh, divine disfavor. God does not uh, and is not pleased with our sinfulness. When we walk in sin, it, it, it is grievous to God's heart. There's guilt when we have sin. We're going to talk about that particularly with the doctrine of original sin in a moment, there's guilt, meaning we're culpable for the sin that we have, that we have uh, committed. 
That's one of the greatest problems with sin. It's not just, okay, I messed up, I broke God's law. We'll leave it at that. Okay, will you forgive me? I'll forgive you. Pass that along, we're over it. No, the, the reality is when Adam and Eve sinned, there wasn't a covering without a sacrifice. There was guilt. And because there was guilt there, for cleansing to take place, there had to be some sacrifice. So God killed an animal and covered Adam and Eve to cover their guilt. And that's true. This is the hard thing about sin, folks. That's true of any of our sins. We carry guilt when we sin before God. Now, thank goodness we sang a moment ago, He will hold me fast. He doesn't hold us fast because you and I hold to Him. He doesn't hold us fast because we're guiltless and sinless. He holds us fast because He sent Jesus to die for us. And His sacrifice on the cross didn't just cover your sin at that moment of conversion that you had, however many years ago it was, that covering for sin continues in your life permanently and forever. Because that's what God does for us. It is a glorious reality. Nevertheless, uh, a sin, one of the effects of sin is guilt. Punishment is the third effect of sin. God, God must punish sin. He's holy. He will not let sin go unpunished. His holiness can't tolerate that. So that's why the punishment, Adam and Eve in the garden, the punishment of Jesus on the cross, not for Jesus' sin, but for our sin. The punishment of eternal separation from God. They're punishments. God in His holiness cannot just simply say, I'm going to wipe your sin away just by my thinking it or my speaking it. Now, there has to be some kind of atoning work, which is what Jesus did on the cross. We'll get to that in a moment. A fourth effect of sin with regard to God is death and all of its dimensions. Physical death, Adam and Eve would eventually experience that after the Garden of Eden. We all will, ex- will experience physical death. The fact that you and I are not going to live forever in these bodies that you're sitting in this room with is a result of, an effect of, the sin that entered into the world with Adam and Eve and continues on to us. There's spiritual death, that's separation from God. Uh, and until we're redeemed, born again, made alive, the language of Ephesians 2 the language of, Rome, of, of John 3, being born again, until God does a work in our heart and makes us alive, we're dead. Sinners in the world, people who don't yet know Jesus, are dead in their sins. So they're in the condition of being spiritually dead. And if you remain in the condition of being spiritually dead, then the third uh, aspect of death is eternal death. Permanent separation from a holy God. The effect of sin. We talk about some effects of sin with regard to ourselves and with regard to others. We'll run through these rather quickly and then we'll move into Romans chapter 5 to discuss original sin. So uh, how does sin affect us? It affects us in, in, in the situation of us being slaves to sin or enslaved to it. It controls us rather than us controlling it. Uh, there's often a denial of sin. How many times have you witnessed that? How many times have you done that? You sin, but you deny that you sinned until someone helps you realize that you really have sinned and broken God's law. There's self-denial. Self-deceit. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Um, You ever wondered why somebody can just 
sin and then live in their sin and then continue to live in their sin without any measure of conviction or contrition or change? It's because of self-deceit. Sin deceives. And when we continue to live in sin, we continue to deceive ourselves. Insensitivity. Let me get real personal for a second. You ever lived with somebody who's just a jerk sometimes? And they don't realize they're a jerk? They're insensitive? Sometimes it's because they're stressed. Sometimes it's because they didn't get enough sleep. Sometimes it's because they're sinful. And they need to confess some sinfulness to God and to others. Just a moment of honesty. I've been here. I've been in this very place where I've allowed sinfulness in my own life, stresses and frustrations to act out, and I've been very insensitive to my wife or to my children. And sin makes us that way. You know, kind Christ-like people don't wallow in their sinfulness because they can't. You're not kind and Christ-like if you're wallowing in sinfulness, and wallowing in sinfulness makes us incredibly insensitive. It makes us restless. Ever met the people that can't find any peace? Can't find a solution in life? Can't find a job? Can't find a spouse? Can't find a place to reside? Can't find calmness? They're restless. Restless people are often people who are holding on to sinfulness that they won't let go of. Sin makes us restless. Sin brings out competition in us. Competitive with others. Uh, sin, I, I skipped one, self-centeredness. Sin makes us self-absorbed. Let me talk about competitiveness for a second. So uh, my dad will get a kick out of this. We, uh, we, we played church league softball when I was a teenage teenager at a church where my dad was pastor. In fact, I, I was actually at Bible college when my dad was playing church league softball, and at 50 plus years of age, he tried to slide into third base and tore every ligament in his ankle, broke his ankle, um, trying to slide into third base, right? Be the call. Yeah, uh, so... It, <laughs> probably were, probably were. Um, it's a good thing, because, anyway. But uh, some of you have played sports later in life. Church league softball can be one of the most ungodly places to ever be. There's a level of competitiveness, and there's nothing wrong with having a competitive drive to be your best and to win. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? That's, that's not in and of itself sinful. But I, I want to I draw something out for a second. In our culture, we have what we would consider a more of a Greek concept of that, a rete. It's the idea of being the best, of winning, of valuing someone who can make a jump shot or throw a touchdown or score a touchdown or, or hit a home run. And, and that's, that is part and parcel of the, the, the kind of uh, celebrity uh, sports mentality that we have. That's not a biblical picture. The Bible doesn't give us heroes that do better than everybody else. Do you know who the biblical heroes are? Generally, they're the runts. David, the last of the kids. 
Moses, the one who couldn't talk well in front of others, who was a murderer, God uses the weak and the small because God wants to show off His glory and His greatness. And so sometimes, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek about you know, church league softball, but sometimes that element of I've got to be better, I've got to be bigger, I've got to have more than the other person, I, I'm going to be competitive, that is not necessarily a godly characteristic that is elevated in Scripture. That is a self-absorbed, sinful characteristic. So we've got to be careful with that. Three more, uh, and then we'll move on. Inability to empathize with others. Uh, rejection of authority. We just have hubris, and we're not going to listen to a politician, a police officer, a pastor, a church leader, a parent. You know, that rejection of authority is oftentimes a symptom of sinfulness that we have. An inability to love is another area of sinfulness. Now, let's, let's get to the, the, the particular subject of tonight. Romans 5 teaches the doctrine of original sin and its universal consequences from Adam to us. What do I mean by original sin? Well, well here's the, the obvious thing. We all know that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They broke God's law. We know that. We also know by personal experience and by observation that all of us are sinners. So that sin that Adam and Eve had in the garden, had committed in the garden has permeated all of humankind. How did that happen? And that's what we're going to talk about theologically. Read with me, if you will, Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. We'll read the text, and we'll walk through some different options and observations about this particular section of Scripture from some different theologians over the years. So, uh, this is uh, death and Adam, life in Christ, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's an important uh, phrase to catch. Adam was a type of Christ. So what Adam did is brought sin into the world, and Jesus goes above and beyond that. He is the penultimate example. He's the archetype. He's the, the focus and the promise. Adam is representative of us, but he points to a greater figure. The greater figure, of course, is Jesus. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that is Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, that abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ." Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, I want to qualify that verse just a second. Paul has already made abundantly clear he's not talking about universal salvation. He's made that clear in Romans 1, Romans 2, and 3. He's talking about the way sin has permeated the human, uh, human, human life. What he means by this, particularly, is that Jesus' death on the cross 
and his saving work is sufficient to save any and all men. It doesn't mean that he automatically does save any and all men, irregardless of their faith and response to him. It just means that his death on the cross is sufficient to save anybody. Nobody's beyond the death of Christ to save and to redeem. That's the point. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned to death, grace also might reign through the righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul goes to great pains to connect Adam and Jesus. So what did Adam do to bring sin in the world? What has Jesus done to solve the sin problem that Adam brought into the world? So let me talk about what that, what that looks like with relationship to original sin and free will. In a very fascinating uh, theological treatise, uh, Martin Luther wrote this book, The Bondage of the Will. Martin Luther wrote this in response to Erasmus, who happened to be a Roman Catholic um, uh, thinker and priest. I think it's, uh, I don't know that we would necessarily call him a theologian. Luther would definitely not call him a theologian. Let me, let me read to you something that Luther said. So uh, this is a, a little bit off the point, okay? But this is for your edification or for your encouragement. Ever, you ever wonder where, where the snippiness came from in Christianity? It may have come from Luther. Here's why. This is Luther writing to Erasmus in the bondage of the will. But may I ask you, my dear Erasmus, to bear with my want of eloquence, as I in these matters bear with your want of knowledge. So Erasmus uh, it was a fascinating historical character. He translated uh, the Old and New Testament in its original languages, Greek and, and Hebrew, and made it accessible for men like Luther and Calvin and other of the Reformers to use those original texts in their preaching. And so he really played a significant role in the Reformation, even though... His perspectives were certainly not evangelical. They were much more Roman Catholic in terms of the way he understood and approached that. And one of the things that Erasmus did is he argued that humans have unabated free will. His case was, in the subject of free will, that humans are free. Now, I believe that humans are free too, but we're only free to a certain degree. And I'm going to explain what I, what I mean by that. So when we're talking about free will, free will connects with the idea of original sin when we think about the extent that sin permeates our lives and brings us to a place of a judgment underneath God. There was a British monk by the name of Pelagius. He lived about 300 or so, 350 or so uh, A.D. And he made this case. This is the first blank under original sin. Uh, Pelagius maintained this. That the soul itself, the human person, is not tainted by sin. And here's the, here's the key phrase. That humans are free to obey God and achieve righteousness by free choice. Pelagius made this argument. He said that humans are, are free. And to a degree, we are all free. You're free to choose what you're going to eat for dinner. You're free to spend your money the way you want to spend your money. You're free to come to church or not go to church. You're free. But Pelagius was going a step further in basically saying that Adam's sin did not taint all of us. 
and that we are free to obey God in our own goodness and in our own deeds. The problem with that view is it's flatly unbiblical and has been argued as heretical all the way back to Augustine, who is promoted as a church father, both in the Protestant tradition, uh, us as, as in the Reformed tradition, and Protestant tradition, as, all, as well as in Roman Catholic tradition. Pelagianism is what we would call a heresy. It essentially says that we're able to do good on our own. The, the argument then that Pelagius would make in, in terms of Romans chapter 5 would be this. You and I have the ability to do good in, in order to earn our own salvation. That's what free will is in Pelagius' ideology. That, that's plainly not true. You and I are free, but we're in bondage to sinfulness to a degree. And Adam, or Paul talked about this with Adam. Adam's sin transferred to you and to me. We are sinners by nature. We're born into sin. You and I cannot be good enough to earn salvation on our own. That's why we need Christ. Another thinker came along, theologian came along. His name is Arminius. He had a, a more modified approach to the subject of original sin or the doctrine of original sin. He argued that we have received a corrupted nature from Adam's sin that includes an inability that is physical and intellectual, but not volitional. In fancy language, bottom line of what he's saying is, yes, we received some, some things from Adam. Obviously, we received death from Adam. Everybody dies. And so that is a physical and an intellectual inability that has transferred from Adam. But Adam's sin, original sin, did not involve the will. And we can still choose to obey God and obey God rightly. Uh, I think there's a significant problem with Arminius' theology on this point. Um, and part of the reason I think that is, well, the biggest part is it's just not biblical. Paul talks about here in uh, Romans 5 that, we're tainted by sin through and through. But the other part of that is, quite simply, experiential. Volitional means your will. Beloved, you may desire with all your heart not to be sinful. Paul said in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing. That's the... Reality of all of our experience. Every single one of us has had moments where we're like, I know I'm not supposed to do this. And what do we wind up doing? Choosing in our own will to do the very thing we know we're not supposed to do. Where did that come from? It came from Adam's taint, Adam's sin that has permeated the entirety of the human race. i give you a third observation on this, and this is John Calvin's observation. He made the observation about original sin that sin, guilt, and corruption have all transferred from Adam to the entire human race. And death is the evidence of that. So sin, guilt, and corruption. Meaning sin, uh, the choice to disobey God. Guilt, the meaning that we carry that with us. We're guilty of sin. And the corruption that is a part of that have all transferred from Adam to us. And the, uh, the, Calvin made the observation how we know that's true is we all die. Every single one of us dies. And so original sin permeates all of us. Let me make a qualification. 
Your sin does not make you a sinner. Because you are a sinner, you sin. Meaning that it isn't just the fact that when you were three years old, you decided you were going to pitch a temper tantrum in front of your parents and not do what they said you should do. If we think that sin began at that moment in that three-year-old's life, that's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of original sin, a misunderstanding of the teaching of Scripture, and a misunderstanding of the solution. Because if, if we make the mistake to think that we became guilty and culpable simply because we chose to do something wrong, then the problem is we don't seek the solution that we need. Sometimes even then we could think that the solution is just to do better, to be nicer, to choose to obey God. And the problem is we're sinful through and through. We are a sinner in need of full-on redemption that can only come through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 5. That's why he said, Adam brought sin into the world, but Jesus did so much more. He brought life into the world. He brought forgiveness into the world. He brought reconciliation into the world. Uh, now, theologians have argued about how this took place. And there, there are two kind of primary uh, arguments for how Adam's sin became original sin or is original sin and transferred to the whole human race. There, there, I didn't really give you a blank, but I'm going to explain what these are. There's the federal headship position and the natural headship position. The natural headship position is related to an understanding of the soul that basically carries with it the idea that our souls have always been in existence. They were, that we were present in Adam. Like, like, to a degree, if there are an original couple, which the Bible teaches, Adam and Eve, in the sense of DNA, in the sense of genes, in the sense of the human development of persons throughout the centuries since Adam and Eve, we were present in Adam. I mean, all of us can trace our DNA lineage back to the original couple, Adam and Eve. That's what the Bible teaches. So in the physical sense, we were present in our parents, Adam and Eve. We wouldn't have done any better than they did in the garden they sinned, we would have sinned. That's the, the federal headship position. The natural position, the one I just described, is that our souls were there in some kind of weird, uh, 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 kind of weird sense that we've always been. And so because our souls were present, then that sin is transferred throughout human history. I, I think that's an odd thing. I don't think the Bible makes that clear. Uh, I think that the federal position, meaning that Adam is our representative. So... Let me say what that means for the human person. You, you did not exist until God wove you together in conception. In other words, when you were conceived in your mother's womb, that's when your soul came into existence. So if that's the case, then how in the world is it right for us to be culpable of Adam's sin? If you began at that moment of conception, God united your soul with your person, how are we guilty of Adam's sin? And Paul talks about it here in Romans 5. He's our representative. He's the one who had the opportunity to obey God. And just remember this. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created in a perfected state. You and I don't know what that's like yet. We've never been in a perfected state. We've always been in a sin um, a deceived state, sin-covered state, always men. Adam and Eve were in a perfected state. When they sinned, 
They didn't have to sin, yet they still sinned. And Adam functioning as our representative means that human sin has essentially permeated all of our lives. Uh, We call that the doctrine of total depravity. It basically means that all of us is sinful. Not that we're as sinful as we possibly could be, but we're sinful through and through. What you desire is sinful. What you long for is sinful. What you do is sinful. It's all tainted by sin. Now, Luther made the argument in, uh, in his book, The Bondage of the Will. He, he, he made the case that we should probably not use the term free will at all. Uh, free will is something that he described as being true of God. Meaning God is truly free. God can do whatever he wants to do. You and I are not truly free with regard to sinfulness. You and I can't today wake up and say, I'm not going to sin today. You can absolutely try. Go for it. I kind of have that goal in my mind before coffee every morning. <laughs> and, and then I, you know, until I get my coffee, there's no chance, right? That that's going to even have a, a hope of taking place. And then somebody will say something and I'll act out and then I'll have sinful... Th- I mean, we, we are not truly free not to sin. We're in bondage to sin. So Luther put it this way. He said, if we do not want to drop the term altogether, that is the term free will, which would really be the safest and most Christian thing to do, we may still in good faith teach people to use it to credit man with free will in respect not to what is above him, but what is below him. That is to say, man should realize that in regard to money and possessions, he has a right to use them or to leave undone or to do according to his own free will. Though that very free will is overruled by the free will of God alone, according to his own pleasure. However, with regard to God and all that bears on salvation or damnation, he has no free will. That's talking about us as men, but we are captive, prisoner, and bond slave either to the will of God or to the will of Satan. The point simply this. You and I, of our own volition, cannot say, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to obey God and be righteous. We can't do that. We're not capable. We're bound, we're slave to sinfulness. We need redemption that is just as significant as our sinfulness. Here's why this really, really matters. Luther quoted a proverb in the bondage of the will. He said this, Many are accounted saints on earth, whose souls are in hell. Many are accounted saints on earth whose souls are in hell. What does he mean by that? If we think our salvation is determined by our behavior, our goodness and our righteousness, then what happens is we are going to necessarily fall short of what it means to experience salvation in Jesus alone. The reason the doctrine of original sin is so important is because if we miss it there, then we can make the false assumption that there's hope for salvation outside of the only one who can earn it, which is Jesus. In his his, uh, systematic theology, Robert Latham put it this way. 
He said, for Pelagianism, and that's the heresy we were talking about earlier, for Pelagianism, fallen, uh, fallen people have the ability to do spiritual good of themselves, and therefore faith and obedience are to be attributed to the person who exhibits them. While failure is due to not trying hard enough. We'll unpack that in a second. J.I. Packer, great uh, evangelical theologian, warns us that Pelagianism is the default position of zealous Christians with little interest in doctrine. So there, there are two qualifications that really are important for us to grasp here. There are so many people in so many churches all across the United States and across the world who think if they go to one more Mass, or if they pray one more prayer, or if they partake in the Lord's Supper one more time, or if they get baptized again, or if they come to the altar one more time, that God will finally accept them because their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. That's false theology. The reason it's false theology is because there's no way that you can do enough good to counteract the sinfulness that dwells within you. It's not possible. So if you're relying on your own goodness, you're going to fall short of what it means to experience salvation. Your goodness isn't good enough, and it never will be. What J.I. Packer reminds us of is that there are a lot of Christians, like genuine followers of Jesus, they had a real, true conversion experience. But they don't care a whole lot about doctrine. They don't care a whole lot about learning about the depth of their faith. And guess what they do? They fall into a trap... A gospel-lacking trap to think, okay, God's going to be happier with me if I do a little bit more righteousness today than I did yesterday. And even though we know that we received salvation from Christ, even though we know He's the one who held on to us at conversion, we think that our spiritual life is then shaped by how much we're holding on to Him today. When we really need to remember our spiritual life is always shaped by how much He's holding on to us. Because you and I are either going to be in bondage to Christ, He holds us, or bondage to our own sinfulness. I mean, yes, we need to work toward righteousness, but we only work toward righteousness out of the abundant grace of God that He offered for our salvation. Let me give you three takeaways. The first one is this, the gospel only makes sense in light of the true condition of the human heart, that is total depravity. Meaning that the solution for salvation, Jesus Christ, only, only works if we understand that we have a desperate, deep need for salvation. That we're totally, fully sinful. Folks, the problem that your loved ones have, or your neighbors have, or, or those that don't know Jesus, the problem is not that they need to do a little better today than they did yesterday. No, they need the full perfection of Christ that Paul talked about in Romans 5. But the death of Jesus that invites us to do just a little better, that really doesn't make sense. If that's all he's inviting us to do is be nicer today than we were yesterday because, you know, we, we have the ability to do good. Oh, no, the reason Jesus died on the cross is because we don't have the ability to do good. The reason he died on the cross is because, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no hope for us to be good enough on our own before God. So we need Jesus. The, we, need, uh, we need this doctrine in order for the gospel to make clear sense. 
I'll come back to that in just a second. Second takeaway, the universal condition of original sin and the gospel solution should drive us to see our fellow man through the lenses of grace, prayer, and gospel witness. What your grandchildren need is new life that only God can bring. What your neighbors need is what Jesus did on the cross that only God can make clear to them. They don't need to pray a rote prayer. They don't need to walk a church aisle. I mean, those are, those are mechanisms for expressing faith in God. And, and they can be very meaningful. But walking a church aisle, shaking the hand of a preacher, praying a prayer doesn't make one a Christian. That would be an act of obedience or an, a work. That would be, I'm doing my own thing to get to God. What they need is God to change their heart. What they need is, is God to open their eyes so they see their need for forgiveness. That's what they need. And so what that means from us is our perspective toward them needs to be, and they got to have God's grace that I have. And who can give them that? God. I can't, I can't, I can't make them believe. Believe me, if I can make them believe, there'd be a lot of people I'd already have in the fold. Right? I mean, I, I, there's people I've prayed for and I've begged and I've tried to twist their arm and I've, I mean, I've shared the gospel every which way that I know to share the gospel and they don't believe. Yet. They need God. They need Him to do a work. So, guess how we need to see those folks? Through grace. Only God can change them. So that does a couple of things. It takes a lot of pressure off you. I don't know, some of you have been in church services, revival meetings, evangelistic meetings where you've had, heard a preacher manipulate to get people to come to the altar. And, and some of you sat in those places and you'd be like, man, that, that feels a little weird. So it's because it is. Because manipulation doesn't work. If I can get you to an altar, somebody else can get you away from one. Well, the only person that can save is God. That's why I don't manipulate. That's why you don't hear me drag on an invitation 12 times. And, and beg people. Because if God's not working, what I'm doing is not going to change someone's heart. And, and you can implore, you can beg, you can pray, you can plead. And we probably should do most of those things a little more often than we do. But no matter how much effort we put in, only God can save. Because the condition of the human heart is so sinful that only God can redeem it. Let me give you a last thing. I really don't have time to bear this out, but I put it on the, on the list so I need to talk about it. Total depravity results in significant questions about guilt from birth. So here's, one of the, here's one of the connecting tensions, right? If there is original sin, and it, if it taints all of us through and through, then your precious little ones who are just months old are sinful. And they need forgiveness and redemption. That plays into the, the discussion on the age of accountability. When is a person culpable for their sinfulness? What do we do with that? I wish I could tell you that the Bible really clarified when it is a person is morally culpable for their acts of disobedience and standing guilt before God. The best I can tell you is that uh, in 2 Samuel 
chapter 12, David put it this way, when his little one died after his sin, uh, the sin with Bathsheba, he said, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. Meaning that David had some kind of affirmation that he would go to be where that child was. So there is, at least in his mind, some kind of anticipation of meeting that child again. You could look at the book of Exodus chapter 20, or Exodus, uh, not chapter 20, but through the book of Exodus where you had the people of Israel. Remember, they they had an opportunity to go in the promised land. They didn't go in the promised land. And uh, God made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until that generation died out. So anyone 20 and younger lived through the 40 years of wilderness wandering, and they were able to go in the promised land. In other words, God held the adults morally culpable for their sinful uh, disobedience, not the children in that instance. Uh, Without going into tons of detail tonight, because we're at 715, and i got to let you go. I believe that God does what is right with regard to children who have not yet reached an age of accountability. And I think I can make that case from those two texts of Scripture. Meaning that there is, we are sinful, but until we're morally culpable for that sin, only God knows when that is. That's His business to know. I can trust that He does what's right with those children and infants who, who would happen to die apart from a conversion experience. But here's what that should mean for us as a church. Folks, our kids don't get off the hook because we somehow think, okay, there's an age of accountability and they're okay. Oh, if, if we're sinful through and through from the very beginning, then your children and your grandchildren need Jesus If they're old enough to disobey you volitionally, they need Jesus. And don't worry about manipulating. You don't have to manipulate children. Just pray for them. Read the Bible to them. Bring them to church. Talk with them about Jesus. I promise you, if you do that regularly and clearly, God will work in their hearts through the power. Because Romans 1 says the gospel is the power of God and salvation. And I can tell you time after time, Baptism after baptism here at our church with children, God's doing just that with parents and with grandparents who are loving their children, praying for them, witnessing to them, sharing the gospel with them, teaching them, they're hearing it at church, and guess what God does? He brings those little ones to salvation. Don't carry the pressure, you've got to save them. You don't have to. Trust that God will. But don't ignore the fact that they need Jesus. Does that make sense? All right, we're going to come back next week and we're going to continue looking at the doctrine of sin. We're going to look at it from the big picture perspective, the problem of evil and suffering in the world and how sin plays into that. So that's next week's topic. And uh, then at at some point we'll move on and look at the doctrine of Christ um, uh, probably in two weeks. So thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 